I'm Rob Freeman, president of Kane Brothers. During this unprecedented and disorienting time, the team at Kane Brothers is conducting weekly interviews with leaders from throughout the healthcare industry for this special edition Industry Insights series. Our goal is to provide you and your organization with a wide array of views on the multifaceted dimensions, challenges, and responses to COVID-19. Transcripts are available on the Kane Brothers website. Please share your feedback with me or any of your Kane Brothers contacts, and thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us. This is Wyatt Ritchie, a managing director with Kane Brothers. Um, we're now six to eight weeks into the COVID pandemic and uh, how this is all unfolding. We thought it would be you know, really enlightening and helpful to reconvene some of our friends in the private equity community to give us an assessment of how things are on the ground since the, the unleashing of the COVID virus in the United States. With me today is Greg Marshall. Greg is a managing partner at Beacon Petty O'Keefe and Company. Ben Edmonds, who's a managing partner and co-founder at Continents Capital Partners. And Marty Felsenthal, partner and co-founder of Health Velocity. First question I'd like to actually have all of you address is just, you know, what we've learned over the last six weeks and how that compares to some of your initial thoughts as we went into the COVID uh, you know, virus. You know, for example, how the virus has manifested itself, how your businesses have reacted, LPs, et cetera. So with that, Morty, like I said, how, how has this changed relative to what you originally thought it would be? You know, uh, it's obviously been a very interesting eight weeks. I would say that relative to our existing expectations, we haven't, unfortunately, been surprised with how the situation has evolved. I was on a call with a very senior Kaiser executive about a week and a half before San Francisco implemented its shelter-in-place regulations. Um, Kaiser was on the front lines dealing with the crisis up in Seattle. And what I was hearing from this executive was extraordinarily scary in terms of both the health impact and the impact on the healthcare uh, community in Seattle. And so we actually shut our office down about a week before San Francisco did and very quickly started uh, to prepare our portfolio, um, put the storm shutters on the windows of our portfolio companies, and are glad we got on it early. You know, I would say that in general, in terms of impact of the lockdown on portfolio companies, and we've, got a, we've probably got a slightly different portfolio than Ben and Greg, more growth-oriented, less direct provision of care-oriented. Everything we're doing is geared towards a more affordable, sustainable, consumer-friendly healthcare system. And so the biggest impacts we've seen on the companies that we partner with have to do with morale. I think it's a, it's a really depressing time to be a part of these companies. You know, they are implementing hiring freezes, they're doing job layoffs, sales. Last year, our average portfolio company grew 77%. At some of our portfolio company sales have ground to a halt over the course of the past six weeks. All of the work involved with scenario planning, understanding the SBA loans, what I've noticed the most is just a very high level of frustration and angst in the companies that we partner with. However, no real surprises when it comes to, to operating performance. 
Greg, how about you relative to, you know, kind of original planning versus how things have unfolded? You know, were you spot on on the planning or has it been better or worse than what you thought? Sure. Maybe, maybe my first comment will be related to the public health response, which has been both surprising and, frankly, a little disappointing because it feels like we still don't have the handle on the mortality rate of this this disease, and that's a function of not enough testing and probably some really bad data coming from the rest of the world that, you know, has caused the public health response to be, you know, so severe and in some cases arbitrary. I think when history is written about this period, you'll wonder if we could have addressed the economic consequences a little differently. Namely, could we have shut our borders? quarantine the elderly and those in nursing homes and focus just on the hot spots geographically. Um, instead, we've got a situation, again, where there's been, you know, we've shut a $21 trillion economy down. And the long-term effects of that, I think, are going to be uh, painful, not, for the, not only for those who were affected by the disease, but also the families and children and college kids who are missing experiences and have seen their wealth destroyed. So if I have a concern and a surprise, it's the uncertainty related to the return to demand on the part of the consumer. And have we set a precedent for future breakouts of disease that may be difficult to break? This did not happen in H1N1 when there were 60 million people infected. It was a much less contagious, deadly disease. But the government has really enabled this shutdown to occur by virtue of flooding the economy with capital. Inevitably, it will be politicized, but as we talk to our companies, I echo Marty's comments, there's a heck of a lot of frustration because the geographic response uh, at a high level has been the same, but there's all kinds of little differences at how the, law, the, the executive orders are being implemented, and that just pretends uncertainty for the ultimate recovery. A rancher in Nebraska is different than a you know, somebody living in New York City, for example, yet many of the rules are the same. So we have to figure this out because uh, the long-term effects could be um, much worse than, frankly, what we're going through today, in my opinion. Ben, and how about you? Any, any thoughts on, on what we've learned uh, that was different or that we originally thought? Well, I think it's, it's tough for me to answer that in terms of what we initially thought because at the beginning of this, we also were close with being being in New York City. I think I'm one of the only three panel members in New York. I mean, we, we saw, particularly since one of our portfolio companies, CityMD, was right on the front lines, we we saw this coming, but we kind of decided we had no idea what to expect. So <laughs> our answer to people calling and asking us questions was, we, we just don't know. You know, we, we're reading the same things you are. We're talking to experts, but we, we don't really know. I, I think having looked back, though, you know, over the last, you know, eight weeks, you know, versus, you know, what my expectations were, What's amazed me more than anything is is just how amazingly resilient people have been, particularly the healthcare provider world, and just the human's ability to completely, you know, reset expectations and adapt to new situations is amazing. I mean, I think if you told people eight weeks ago, hey, we're going to shut the economy down for eight weeks, you're going to be in your home with your family <laughs> for a bunch of time, you're not sure exactly what you're going to get, and oil is going to go to negative 37. People have stayed pretty calm. I mean, there's been a media frenzy. We've completely changed the way we've, we live our lives. We've completely changed the way we work. Those of us are still working. But yet there still seems to be an amount of calm in, in the country and amongst the people, which it, to me has been surprising. I, I would have thought there would have been a lot more unrest and 
more 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 outbreaks of, of civil civil unrest. We're still early. Who, who knows what's what's going to happen? But I, I think what I also would have thought, uh, you know, eight weeks ago, is that by now we would have had a much more clear national response. And I've been underwhelmed by, you know, national testing movements and tracing, and it's all. But having said that, I've been pretty impressed. Local, you know, a lot of the actions happen at the local level, the local structural level. So, I think I think there's been some real, you know, cause for uh, accolades for some heroes that have stepped up. But still, you know, I think we're largely grappling with how to get out of this and there's we, it feels like we're just missing some real true national leadership on that front well speaking of you know heroes and creativity we've also been impressed you know in our conversations relative to how companies you know, have been able to adapt and make changes you know to their business models in light of covid and i'm curious you know what what you guys have seen within your portfolio companies are there changes that have been implemented as a result of necessity that you know you now think are going to be more long lasting than than what is just you know a covid related activity you know marty i don't know if you know within your portfolio you've seen some of that innovation and more importantly, you know, do you see that long-lasting telemedicine, for example, any of those kinds of things? I'm just curious, you know, what you've seen on the ground with your companies. Yeah, we've seen why we've seen a tremendous amount of creativity, particularly from a product development standpoint within our portfolio, as well as an unusual uh, amount of speed with which those companies are innovating on the product side. You know, I think our current portfolio is comprised of 11 companies. As I was preparing for this call, you know, five of them very quickly implemented product development plans uh, that were impactful. Uh, MD Live, one of the nation's three largest telehealth platforms, had uh, saw volumes basically doubled in the span of a week. That creates a tremendous need for additional providers. You have to credential those providers. We credentialed hundreds of additional providers faster, more reliably, and better than we ever have in our history. We work with a company called Well Health that's got a communications platform that allows a provider to convert any communication, clinical or administrative, into a unified bi-directional text chain. The thesis being the telephone in healthcare creates a ton of friction. Patients hate it, staff's frustrated, it's expensive, the staff turnover lost patient volume, so optimal clinical outcomes. Within the span of a week, they implemented uh, a new product that could be deployed within 48 hours um, and implemented almost on a premium basis to help health systems convert in-person visits to virtual visits with all of the, without all of the telephonic back and forth. The virtual waiting, one, one of our clients used it for a virtual waiting room where they would basically have patients come to the parking lot, wait in their cars, and they'd get a text when it was safe to come into the office, canceling visits, rescheduling visits, collecting faster, community messaging, individual messaging. Ginger Health, which is a telebehavioral health company, implemented, you know, I think a really wonderful service where they were uh, started providing their services, telebehavioral health services. Really interestingly, Wyatt, uh, we work with a company called Contessa Health, which is a hospital-at-home company, partner with Mount Sinai in New York, then obviously right at, you know, ground zero in terms of the pandemic in the United States. Within a week 
of the crisis in New York, they worked with Mount Sinai to start providing hospital at home services initially to all of Mount Sinai's patients, all of Mount Sinai's non-COVID related patients. And now they're actually taking care of some COVID patients as well um, in their homes where it's safer for everyone. Bureau Health company that provides medication-assisted therapy to individuals with substance use disorder. I think in the span of a week, they converted 50% of their visits to telehealth. So we've seen faster, better, stronger product development initiatives over the course of the past eight weeks. And I'd say we've seen at any point uh, over the course of our careers. And, you know, and I think on a more holistic level, we're going to see that continuing going forward. You know, this has been a real wake-up call for the entire healthcare system, in my opinion, both payers and providers. But the pace at which we've been working towards a more affordable, sustainable, consumer-friendly healthcare system has not been fast enough, and this pandemic has exposed real flaws in our system. Greg, how about you? What have you seen in terms of changes, <clears throat> and do you think those changes are going to be more permanent and be part? of the operational delivery system that they weren't before, that COVID's been a facilitator of that. Sure. Just uh, briefly, I would echo a number of Marty's comments, particularly the notion of um, virtual visits. A number of our provider-facing businesses have implemented quickly that capability, and it's been well-received by, you know, patients. Uh, The other comment I would make is just work at home. I've been very impressed with both our firm and, frankly, the interaction with all the companies and between companies at how uh, how uh, flexible and resilient, to use Ben's word, uh, folks have been to work at home. And I, I think the implication for the business going forward is it's an opportunity to revisit your real estate footprint and uh, can you eliminate some unnecessary offices and provide more worker flexibility to induce them back into the workplace quickly. Uh, by enabling work at home as a more permanent solution. I think there's a real economic opportunity there uh, that we'll, we'll see sustained over time. I, listen, I think the telemedicine question is going to be one that we're all going to be thinking about because it's, it's something that we've talked about conceptually for a while, but there was a lot of resistance to it from, from the patient and also from the provider base that you know, I think in some ways felt threatened. One thing I, I think, you know, going back to resilience and flexibility, you know, the speed with which CMS has dealt with and a lot of the local state agencies have dealt with credentialing and, and authorizing telemedicine for various different things has been, has been great. We've been, we were woefully underprepared for this pandemic, you know, nationally, but, you know, through duct tape and speed and flexibility, I think we've managed to kind of clear a lot of the underbrush and, and hopefully we're, you know, at the beginning of getting through it. But the telemedicine question, you know, we, we've gone from, you know, one of our companies was zero telemedicine we went to 100%. Another one was 2%. We went to 70% of our visits telemedicine. And I think, um, I, you know, I'm not saying we're going to stay at that level, but clearly, you know, a patient who experiences that and a doctor who has that type of interaction and realizes that they can have a pretty fulsome visit, you know, and not have to have someone sitting in a, in a, in a waiting room and the patient not having to go find parking and all that stuff, I think the move towards telemedicine, there's going to be at least a, a, a significant chunk you know, going into that. And so the question that we're asking is, what does that do to the infrastructure, the existing infrastructure? What does that do to real estate? What do MLBs look like outside of hospitals and those types of things? And what opportunities 
do you have to kind of repurpose some of that space for, for other things where people might be wanting to get wanting to get out of a hospital quicker, for example, but they don't they're not ready to go home. So do you repurpose some of that real estate? So the, the question that we're asking is, you know, what which one of these changes are, are kind of lasting, or what are the implications for the healthcare system overall? Ben, do you um. In addition to telemedicine, I think we both would agree it definitely is, is a positive. Do you see any other sectors or applications that have actually been positively influenced as a result of COVID? Yeah, obviously urgent care. You know, we have a, one of the larger urgent care players in the New York metropolitan yep. market and CityMD and partnered with Summit Medical Group, which is one of the largest outpatient physician groups. You know, we, 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 we had volumes go up dramatically. At the beginning, we unfortunately had volumes, you know, slightly go down because, quite frankly, we just couldn't staff the sites. We had to shut, you know, shut down 20 sites because we couldn't maintain staff because we had people that were getting sick and had childcare issues. But now we've been able to largely fix that, and we've been able to offer. Uh, now we're launching uh, more full-scale uh, PCR COVID tests, and then last week we launched the ability to do uh, immunology tests. So the volumes have gone up. So I don't know how sustained that's going to be, but the, the volumes there have obviously largely been up. You know, we have a behavioral health asset service the geriatric population in the rural communities. It's particularly partnering with critical access hospitals, and obviously hospitals did not want elderly people showing up, and people did not want to go there. But we shifted to telemedicine, and I think, you know, we've now largely almost shifted completely over to telemedicine for behavioral health group therapy, and we think that the demand for those services will, will, will increase as well. You know, one of our other portfolio companies is a diagnostic lab, and, and obviously with telemedicine, there's going to be less ability. You know, you're not going to be able to take samples to, you know, whether it be, you know, skin or nail or blood or whatever. But we, we, we had a PCR technology there. Two and a half months ago, we totally um, focused the R&D team on launching a PCR test uh, for COVID, and we launched that two weeks ago. So we'll see hopefully some uptick there. So there's a lot of puts and takes within our portfolio, but but overall, you know, the the, the impact on healthcare demand has been has been significant. It's been largely largely down. I mean, we see practices like Durham and and uh, and others down 70, 70, 80 percent. So it's a question of when when people are going to start funneling back into those therapeutic areas. Well, obviously, you know, we, we've started started slowly to reopen things. I'm not sure. Durham or dentistry necessarily, but the economies are starting to reopen, and obviously there's geographic disparity around that. But I'm just curious, you know, within your portfolio companies, Greg, are you starting to see, you know, green shoots of activity and kind of a returning, or are we still too early to really see that? No, we 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 are seeing it, and and I think our leading indicators that a number of companies that, for instance, we have a staffing related business, and there's now being we're aware that elective procedures in some hospitals around the country are being scheduled imminently and certainly into the June period. Again, by virtue of some of the virtual visits we're conducting on a diagnostic basis, one of our businesses is now scheduling procedures imminently. We we generally put the brakes on new site expansion in our provider businesses, but now I think, again, there's enough visibility on opening dates by state that we can start revisiting those. So it's very much state-specific, and even beyond that, it's very localized as to what, um, you know, what can open. I think the bigger 
you know, potentially the bigger challenge is do you have workers? You know, do you have particularly lower wage workers willing to come back to the workforce when it's not completely safe potentially? Again, there's unemployment benefits which are uh, affecting that decision as well potentially in the short term. So I, you know, labor is a big component of, you know, big, big contributor to whether you can open a provider-based business uh, in the near term, I think. How about you, Marty? Are you starting to see any green shoots, you know, within your portfolio companies? You know, it's, it's really interesting what we've got, uh, and I was talking to Rob about this last week, we've got 11 companies in our current portfolio. You know, Ben, I think, said it well. There are puts and takes in every company, but four of our 11 companies are either directly or indirectly related to telehealth. And I'd say that, unfortunately, they've been net beneficiaries of this environment. You wish it didn't take a pandemic for an area like telehealth to reach an inflection point, but they're, they've generally been doing fine. We have three provider-based services businesses, uh, IVX Health, which operates uh, ambulatory infusion centers for patients on high-cost drugs. Um, their volume really hasn't been impacted. These are patients with MS and rheumatoid arthritis and severe asthma and Crohn's and colitis who need these drugs um, to, to, to be well. And in some cases, hospitals have been emptying out the hospital infusion suite for safety reasons and sending their patients to us. You've got a hospice provider. Uh, you unfortunately can't slow down death. They really haven't been impacted. You know, the business I alluded to earlier, Spiro Health, that provides medication-assisted therapy to individuals with substance use disorder, they've probably seen a 20 25% impact. That rebound. And then we've got four SaaS businesses that one sells to payers, three sell to providers. The payer business actually sold a large new contract last week. The provider businesses, their sales cycles have largely ground to a halt, and uh, we have not seen a rebound there yet. I think the provider community is still generally heads down, dealing with the pandemic, trying to understand what their budget's going to look like for the rest of the year. Uh, we've been fortunate in that we haven't seen any meaningful churn across any of those SaaS software businesses, but we really haven't seen the wheels fall off anywhere. We've been really lucky so far. We haven't had that much to rebound from yet. And I say that recognizing I'm going to get struck by lightning and suddenly in hell. I just, Ben, I'm curious, how about just taking the counter? Are there any, are there any sectors in particular you're particularly concerned about, or, or is it just more weather, weather the storm? Well, listen, I, I'm going to be master of the obvious here, but, you know, obviously, you know, sectors that are more consumer-oriented, that are more elective in nature, are going to take longer to come back. And people are going to do the math of the calculus of, do I really need to go see my dentist right now, for example, and risk contracting COVID, or can I wait nine months for my teeth cleaning? So I think, I think there's, the, there's, the, there's that calculus. And then I, I think the other thing that we're, we're trying to figure out is, you know, what's the second derivative impact here when you have this much of a shift, you know, for every one point, you know, one percentage point of an unemployment, it's over, you know, you know, three million people that are, shifting out of employee-sponsored health insurance. And, you know, the rough math is we think, you know, about half of those go into Medicaid and, you know, pays, you know, what, 50% of what commercial typically pays and other people are going to go to exchanges and those they pay 25 30% less than traditional insurance and then self-insured. Obviously, you're lucky to collect 15 or 20 cents on the dollar there. So I, I, I think, um, you know, sectors that are more elective, non-essential, 
will 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 take longer for people just to do the calculus. And then when their benefit, you know, when they're they shift into Medicaid, that's one thing. And then I also think there's probably the potential for pretty significant benefits benefit design change again. You know, we saw you know after the financial crisis, you know, an acceleration of you know the push towards high deductible health plans and you know, started to flatten out. But I think when you, once you once you have a soft labor market and most most employers are going to be under pressure for the foreseeable future, there's we think there's going to be more benefit buy downs, and that that'll impact consumer behavior even more. I think it'll be really interesting to see to that point if we go, you know, if there's finally a move now towards more narrow network, sort of the next phase of of high deductible plans, you know, reference based pricing. Exactly. Well, speaking of you know, derivative effects, I love all of you guys away, and the federal government, you know, is a huge influence over healthcare, both as a payer um, and in other ways. And they, they've obviously been doing a lot in terms of liquidity into the market. You know, that's going to have implications. They've obviously put money into healthcare providers through prepayment services through CMS. What are you guys thinking about vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, short-term and long-term implications of all the action that the federal government, you know, has been taking, you know, in light of in light of COVID? Greg, how about you taking that one first? Yeah, I think I think there's a uh, potentially historic opportunity here. To be honest, I, I, I you know, Obamacare was spawned partially out of the financial crisis and. You know, what it cost the federal government to implement ACA was was $900 billion over 10 years. Uh, on a relative basis to today and what's being financed elsewhere, it's nothing. Um, so I think that there's an opportunity to expand coverage in 2021, regardless of political party persuasion in leadership. And that benefits all of us. It benefits most importantly, the consumer and those who are uncovered. But you could revisit Medicaid expansion, even though there are barriers to that with the Supreme Court ruling in you know, several years ago. You could revisit Medicare uh, eligibility. Um, I think Medicare Advantage will be a boon. So there's an opportunity really to finally close the bonnet hole on coverage. And I think Again, on a relative basis, the dollars are going to be insignificant if we look in the re recent rearview mirror. So I, I'm net positive on the coming out of this from that standpoint. It doesn't address the cost equation, and nat naturally, we, the country's always been reluctant to go there. But there's going to be a near-term opportunity to expand coverage and the number of paying customers to all of our, our provider-based businesses. And how about you? What's, what's your take on Kev? The outlook from a federal government point. Yeah, I, I, you know, what, one, one comment I neglected to make on, you know, on surprises. I, I was, uh, I mean, just the fact that we all maintain liquidity in the system for the last eight weeks. I think we all would have said there was at least a, you know, 20% chance there's going to be some sort of liquidity problem, and the fact that there wasn't, I think it's impossible to overstate how important that was. Yeah, ma ma maintaining liquidity has been, that's been fantastic. And there is a liquidity problem that obviously completely changes the outlook for any sort of recovery on the overall economy. Um, in terms of, you know, CMS, you know, making making changes and potential impacts there, obviously, you know, federal government's going to be under massive budget, budgetary pressures. I think they, you know, we're already dealing with a massive deficit issue. I think what CMS has realized is that making big cuts to sectors that are critical 
it's just short-term dollars. They end up having to put more money into the system. So I think continued, continuing to look at ways to get people to low-cost setting, I think to, to – uh, I think it was Greg's point on Medicare Advantage. I think Medicare Advantage is going to be increasingly a, a, a great solution to control costs. Um, and then, you know, enabling telemedicine, making some of these changes that maybe might, might have been temporary, more permanent, I think is going to be a, a big push for sure. Getting people in the home, we think is going to be another you know, service in the home. We think it's going to be another you know, key initiative as well. Morty, is, is this cause you at all to rethink strategies from an investment point of view or still sticking to your general thesis? Our broad thesis hasn't changed at all as a result of the crisis. Some of the more specific areas that we're interested in have uh, been reprioritized. And as we've thought about areas to target as a result of the pandemic, you know, some of the areas that we're focused on are telehealth, telehealth, and telehealth. Anything that can help systems and payers deal with COVID-19 over the next 18 to 24 months, businesses that can help providers capture meaningful and fast ROI. You know, I'm not sure the country realizes the economic pain that's been inflicted on our provider community as a result of shutting down elective procedures. We were on a call with a number of health systems last week. One of them lost $80 million in March, one lost $100 million in March, one's expecting to lose $800 million this year. So we're going to have to find ROI savings. You know, we think that communications and, for lack of a better word, the digital front door become that much more important in healthcare. You know, communications in an environment like this, communications have never been more important. Whether it's community messaging, individual messaging about COVID, about canceling procedures, rescheduling procedures, still largely communicate in healthcare uh, via the phone or mail mail. We're interested in uh, businesses that can help seniors age at home. You know, I think a quarter of all of the nation's deaths as a result of COVID-19 have taken place in senior care facilities. Consumers are going to want alternative solutions to assisted living. And because of the economic crisis, a lot of people aren't going to be able to afford it. Uh, remote patient monitoring, I think Ben mentioned this earlier, getting as much as possible out of the hospital. That trend's just going to be accelerated, both for cost and safety reasons. We've seen a lot of interest on, from both payers and providers around analytics, both predicting who's at risk for COVID-19 and localized surges there, and what their staffing and labor needs are, both for the surge as well as for the eventual comeback of elective procedures. You know, my belief coming out of this crisis is going to be that innovation in healthcare will never be more important. I also believe that because of the crisis, payers and providers are really centralizing and speeding up decision-making at a pace that we've never really seen over the course of our careers. However, I am concerned that notwithstanding the fact that innovation has ever been more important for healthcare, for innovation, particularly on the provider side, are going to get gutted, uh, which is arguably the last thing we can afford right now. Well, I want to kind of conclude with just, you know, transactions and deal-making a little bit on that front. You know, Ben, you had mentioned about liquidity in the market and the strength of liquidity, and I would certainly concur with our conversations. You know, we've also had a lot of conversations with private equity firms who have talked about, you know, broadening their investment criterions to look at pipes and minority investments and structured equity, kind of filling stopgap measures for companies. I'm just curious, you know, what's your 
take on that? You know, do you think that that's going to be an active area? There's obviously a lot of complexity with that. I'm just curious, you know, what's your sense of, are there going to be a lot of those types of transactions or do you think we'll go back more to traditional change of control type transactions as we get through this? You know, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. We actually were, you know, we talked, we talked about this a couple of times over the last couple of weeks because you know, going back to your, your first question, you know, or the prior question about reevaluating our investment strategy. I think the sectors that we like are largely intact. Are there some new ideas that we have that we, you know, we think could be interesting in this market? Sure. We're trying to pick ourselves to come up with, you know, crazy ideas in, you know, in this kind of things. And I do agree with Marty that we think innovation will be, you know, still accelerated, hopefully again. So we spent a lot of time, you know, so our, but our investment piece is largely intact for now. We are thinking, you know, okay, how do we, how do we execute that, 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 that theme strategy and different transaction types, and obviously pipes and preferred equity investments and, you know, good companies that have, temporary liquidity or leverage issues because of the crisis, um, you know, obviously become a lot more actual now. I think to answer your question, though, you know, my, well, my answer is I don't know, and it largely is a function of how long this lasts. I think if it's, if it's you know, we go back to normal in, in the fall and it looks like we're going to pull out of this, I think, you know, Existing GPs will say, "I'm going to, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'll continue to support these." I think if it lasts longer, the ability to support these companies will, will come under pressure, and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll need fresh capital. So I, I think it's a function of of how long the cycle and how how deep it is. Because if you know, it's a good company that's got an upside down balance sheet, you know, most people are going to want to support that. If it's, if it's only a temporary blip, and there's just going to be a pretty large gap in the bid ask between what you know someone coming in thinks the company's worth versus an existing investor. So I, I, I hate to be, you know. I agree. I think that's the reality of what we're all dealing with. Just Greg, real quickly, just, you know, other capital partners, the lenders, you know, how, how have they been, you know, our sense is they've been supportive. Do you expect that to continue? My guess is you have a similar answer to, uh, to Ben that it depends, but I'm just curious what's the state of play with, with lenders as they look at your portfolio companies with you. Sure, sure. And again, I, you know, we've had a distribution of companies that are accelerating and growing fine through this. A, a, another subset that is treading water and, you know, getting through it, and then a couple that are struggling that are more consumer-facing. You know, our lenders aren't banks. For the most part, they're largely unregulated finance companies and you know they have been constructive their long-term relationships uh, I think however Q2 will be the real test uh, when covenants are breached in some cases or there's liquidity needs in the industry around you know it'll happen in Q2 in my opinion and I also am a little concerned as to the you know the cost of capital of our capital our lenders is going to go up if their portfolios become troubled. That's that's not like a bank. Uh, these finance companies rely on banks, and to the extent their their ratios are impaired or their cost of capital goes up, it could affect the their behavior in amendments and the quantum and cost of debt that they're offering to all of us going forward, at least temporarily. So you know we're watching it. We've implemented a pretty rigid communication strategy, which the lenders have kind of asked for and are appreciative of and we're over communicating and hopefully getting ahead of any difficult discussions we may have to have in the second quarter, you know, in the summer time period. But you're correct in saying for the most part, so far so good. But I, I 
I would do foresee a little bit more resistance. And again, there's going to be gradients of of, uh, of pushback or acceptance to, to changes going forward. But, but that would be my comment. And then finally, you know, curious as you guys think about just transaction activity you know, going forward, near-term, long-term, and more importantly, just what do you think it's going to take to kind of get back to, quote-unquote, normal levels? And even in a normal environment, I'm also curious, what does that do to valuations? Do, do you think we're going to get a rebasing of just what I call normal valuations in light of all of this, or do we go back to, to pre-COVID environments, just generally speaking, an overall assessment across all those things? And so, Marty, why don't you kick us off there? I don't know how we can get back to normal pacing of investments without being able to travel freely. We're all ultimately in the business of partnering very closely with management teams. We would all characterize partnerships as like marriages. You know, the prospect of investing in a company without meeting them in person is, you know, a little bit like a mail order bride, which Wyatt, I'm assuming, is how you got married. Exactly. You know, so as we're looking, I think it's hard to get back to the normal pace of investments, the ability to travel freely. You know, the companies that we're looking at now and have been looking at over the course of the past eight weeks are, by and large, either businesses that we've looked at in the past that need additional growth capital or management teams that we've known for 15, 20 years. You know, and we're, we haven't figured out yet as an organization how we feel about traveling, even as some of the restrictions come off, you know, until there is a vaccine or herd immunity, you know, we're putting ourselves at risk and we're putting our communities at risk. And so we're having a lot of really interesting sort of moral and ethical debate inside of the partnership about what our return to normal is going to look like. I'd say on the flip side of that, Wyatt, relative to your question about valuations, in our sector, gross equity, you know, we haven't really seen a valuation reset yet. We have seen a handful of interesting companies over the course of the past eight weeks that either needed capital or optionally would like to strengthen their balance sheets. However, still raising off of their last round expectations and their syndicates are sufficiently deep enough that the insiders are willing to do inside rounds rather than take a haircut. And that's really included us from digging in hard into much over the course of the past eight weeks, which isn't to say we haven't seen businesses we like. We've just had a challenge with underwriting. And how about you? What are, what are your expectations? Yeah, I don't I don't really know. <laughs> I hate to keep repeating that phrase, but I think it's going to be slow the next quarter. I mean, we, we, we closed we, we bought a company last week and we, we sold a company last week. And the only reason that happens is because we were working on these things long before, long before the crisis hit. So I think it's going to be, I think, I think, I think the third quarter is going to be pretty slow. And I think when the market comes back, and I, I think it was Marty talking, like we haven't seen a real, real reset on the PE side. We just haven't been on a philosophy. But my guess is when the market comes back, we're going to see a bifurcation. We're going to see a big bifurcation. We're going to see companies that are, like an MA plan, Medicare Advantage plan, that's largely insulated from something like this. It's, you know, got good growth. It's obvious, you know, and this is going to go for a premium. The ones where it's a little bit less clear, you know, you're making a bet when things come back, you know, that's, those, those will probably be cheaper. And my guess is when we look back four years from now or five years from now and look at you know, where the outsized returns were, it's going to be like, you know, the people who made bets in 08, 09, you know, the ones that weren't even, that weren't really that obvious at the time, but they, they worked out. 
and those were the that's where the outsized return. The people kind of pick those sectors that it's not exactly obvious. They go in and they're not paying a big price. They don't have to lever it. They, have, and they can have the patience to make their way through. Great. How are you? Yep, sure. The, the, uh, a couple points. One, I mean, most of the businesses we buy are founder-owned, so we're the first capital in. And there will be, or we're anticipating, uh, you know, a bid ask as folks try to look through this current environment, not only from a performance standpoint, but from a just a market multiple you know, they're going to look backwards, we're going to look forwards. And once that is resolved, I, I think there will be good activity. Uh, it's going to be proactive in nature uh, more than anything. And that's where you have to get creative on structuring and perhaps, Ben, to your point about bifurcation, paying for an asset that, you know, for which you can look around the corner in the industry or getting comfortable with a high valuation on a company that's performing. Uh, I completely agree with the bifurcation comment. By the way, I think um, the premium assets will continue to get premium multiples, notwithstanding the environment today. There's still a ton of capital out there, and I, I think the willingness to look through and over-equitize in this environment is still going to be the instinct of most buyers. And there's probably going to be less leverage available, answer I gave previously, and also because of, you know, the bay, the lenders less apt to accept addbacks. I mean, that, that was a bubble that was waiting to burst, and now it has. So there, you know, potentially it's a, it's a return issue for all of us entering at those multiples. Again, the bifurcation point is, I think, right on, and I think we're going to continue to see it. But certainly activity is extremely slow now, and it's probably at least three months away from picking up measurably. So Q4, I would say. Right. Well, you guys have all been very generous with your time and insights, so thank you. I do very much appreciate it, and there will be more to learn as the next few weeks unfold.